Welcome to a special bonus episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A lot of skimmers are preparing to go back to the office or are already back IRL. But what does going back to normal actually mean for women? A few weeks ago, we hosted a panel discussion to ask some experts, what does the future hold for women as we return or not to work? We had a great lineup for this conversation. Fatima Goss-Graves, president and CEO of the National Women's Law Center. Ai-Jen Pu, co-founder and executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Tammy Foreman, CEO of Path Forward. And Tina Chen, then president and CEO of Time's Up. We kicked things off by talking to Tina about the backlash her organization had been facing. Time's Up was founded in 2018, early in the Me Too movement. The group's leadership faced criticism this summer after it came out that the board chair of Time's Up had advised former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo over sexual harassment allegations. And we want to note that Tina Chen has since resigned from her position there. We want to give a special thanks to our panelists for this interesting and important discussion. And we hope you enjoy this special episode of 9 to 5-ish. Welcome, everyone. I'm Carly. And I'm Danielle. And we're the co-founders and co-CEOs of The Skim. Thanks so much for joining us for an important conversation about women and the workplace. Like us, skimmers across the country and world are preparing to go back to the office after a year and a half of mind-blowing and tragic global and personal change. And now the Delta wave. This should be our great her turn, but massive job loss and increased care responsibilities are giving women a whole new set of challenges. As founders of a company made for millennial women with a workforce largely driven by women, we take this issue seriously and we're going through it ourselves in so many ways. We know something needs to change. What was working pre-pandemic didn't really work for that many people. And now we have the opportunity to really talk about what going back to normal means for working women and what actions we can take to make an impact now. Let's start by introducing you to our panelists. Can everyone give us a skim of what we should know about you in 60 seconds or less? We're counting. Fatima, we're going to start with you. Fatima Goss-Graves, you're up. Well, I'm so glad to be here. I'm Fatima Goss-Graves. I'm president and CEO of the National Women's Law Center, which is based in Washington, D.C. And we have litigators, we have advocates, we have storytellers and everything in between. We've been around for 50 years next year. I obviously haven't been leading it for 50 years, but it is sort of the dream work to do the work of gender justice. And that's what we do. I'm also one of the co-founders of Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, which the National Women's Law Center houses and runs. Thank you, Fatima. Tammy Foreman, please skim. Hi, I'm so honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Tammy Foreman. I'm the executive director of Path Forward. We are a nonprofit organization on a mission to empower women, mostly, but anyone who's taken time off for caregiving, empower them to restart their professional careers. It sounds like this is something that maybe I've just been doing recently, but actually, no. We started five years ago. This is our fifth year anniversary. 
Fatima, I'm in awe of 50 years. I have been leading this organization for all five of those years. And this has been the most impactful year we will have and many more to come. So it's been disheartening on days and thrilling on other days. And I'm really excited to see what the future holds for the collective us. So really excited to be here and talk about this important topic. Thank you, Tammy. I, Jen Poo. Hi, everyone. My name is Ai-Jen Poo, and I'm the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and also of a campaign called Caring Across Generations. And at the National Domestic Workers Alliance, we represent the women, mostly women, majority women of color who work inside of our homes as caregivers, caring for our children as home care workers, caring for our aging parents and our loved ones with disabilities and as house cleaners, maintaining order in our crazy lives inside our homes. And at Caring Across Generations, we've built a campaign and a coalition to bring all of the families who need care together with the workers who provide it to build a caregiving system in our country that allows us to take care of the people that we love while we work and take care of our caregivers too. Thank you, Ai-Jen. And last but not least, Tina Chen. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here with everybody. My name is Tina Chen. I am president and CEO of Time's Up. As Fatima mentioned, you know, we're actually the the youngest kid on the block here on the screen, I think, having only come into play three and a half years ago in a sort of a burst, you know, where Time's Up, you know, in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein allegations um, came on the scene. The Time's Up Legal Defense Fund was the first project of a group of women starting in entertainment, but women from across industries coming together to really work for survivor justice. All of the money that we raised at the beginning and it's now at the Times of Legal Defense Fund, but has been administered at the National Women's Law Center because we wanted legal experts to make those decisions around individual cases. The part of Times Up that I'm the head of has become an advocacy organization to really work on broader issues for survivor justice and also to work to break down the barriers that keep women out of power in the workplace because that is what leads to toxic workplaces where sexual harassment occurs. And that brings us to the issues of today, which are these barriers like the absence of caregiving, the absence of supports in the workplace for women, the impact that we've seen on women through COVID. It's personal to me, you know, before Time's Up, I was a corporate lawyer for most of my career as a single working mom, then eight years in the Obama White House, and then now at Time's Up. And great to be here with all of you. Thank you all for joining us today. So before we dive into the impact of COVID-19, which is what we had planned to talk about when we think about going back to normal, right? We do want to talk about one thing that we never want to go back to normal, which is the idea of having toxic work environments. And one of the things that women have been speaking up against in recent years is harassment in the workplace. And Hopefully, we can all assume that the tolerance for a toxic work environment will be at an all-time low when we actually do go back to working in person in some degree. Tina, we want to start off with you. We know that you and Time's Up have been kind of in the hot seat right now. This type of discrimination was what Time's Up was founded on dismantling. And recently, the org has come under fire. So I want to give a bit of a skim for those who may not be as familiar with what's been going on recently. Earlier this month, the chairwoman of Time's Up resigned after it came out that she had been advising former Governor Cuomo's administration on his sexual harassment allegations. That obviously led to wider criticism about leadership's personal political association and the organization's priorities as a whole. 
many survivors and internal employees have said that they've felt let down and, and disappointed. Where do you think this went wrong? Where has there been a disconnect between how Time's Up was founded, which was powerful women coming together to help and to advocate, and now that same group and how it's expanded being questioned for whether the priority is really helping people in power, or is it helping the survivors and women that have come out of this? Well, thank you, Danielle. And I will try to do this in skin fashion very quickly, very quickly, although it's very complicated and complex as these issues are. Look, as you point out, Time's Up was founded by, you know, women who had influence and had a platform and wanted to make sure they could use that platform to actually make things better for women in the workplace, for LGBTQIA, disabled people, people of color, all in the, in the workplace. And we've tried to do two things, which is to hold powerful people accountable when that needs to happen, but then also to work with them to make things better. Because if we can pass legislation and work to make things better on the legal front, on the policy front, on expanding new programming in within companies, because you know a company can put paid leave into place overnight while we're still slogging our way through Congress as we are right now. And you know we always try to do both of those things, always holding constantly in everything that we've done, the fact that we are serving and trying to make things better for survivors, for women in the workplace, for vulnerable workers. And just a quick reference to Cuomo, look, that's how we got involved with the Cuomo administration in the first place was to work with them to pass an amazing piece of, you know, package of legislation for survivors, specifically on sexual harassment and on rape and sexual assault in 2019. So we actually thought we were working with an administration that had that in mind. Turns out we learned from the attorney general's incredible report that that's not the case and setting up and working on better ways of recognizing how can we do that work in terms of working with people who have the ability to make change, but do it in a responsible way that does not lead survivors to question us or feel as though we have betrayed them, which is never anything we wanted to do. And I have already been deeply apologetic publicly, which I feel deeply as someone who's worked for gender justice my whole career. The idea that my actions have caused pain to women is deeply, deeply and profoundly regretful to me. But we want to examine this now. And that's what we're going to do at Time's Up is to model a way of looking at this, reflecting on ourselves, getting outside expertise to help us do that, to have, see how we can do this and, and build it better in a way that we all share these goals. And they're so critical. They're so important. The problems we're trying to solve are so vast and so longstanding. We are young. It's a three year and a half year old organization where we are growing and learning. And we want to be open to that learning, open to the criticism, open to how we're going to do that, both from our employees and from former staff and from critics, survivors, supporters alike all the way across the board. You know, I think in doing research for this, I came across Shonda Rhimes, who, you know, obviously co-founder and, and big backer of Time's Up, as well as an investor at The Skim. She, as part of her statement, said, you know, the fact that Time's Up has become viewed as a receptacle for and the focus of men trying to cover up their obscene behaviors is exhausting to me. Saving men, especially predatory men, is not on Time's Up's agenda. And uh, I think that you know, should be clear, but obviously the group's kind of accountability is being called into question. 
How do you start to really move that forward? I know you're talking about working with a consulting group, but a lot of this goes to, I'm sure, actually internally as well. Well, Daniel, we've been doing a lot of internal work for the last year plus, like many organizations over the course of COVID, over the course of the racial reckoning in our country. I think everyone has been examining themselves. We have had folks in outside, experts in working with our team starting well over a year ago as we build this organization from scratch. Here's the thing about Time's Up. We were a global brand before we had employee number one. I mean, that really is what happened with that amazing burst of awareness and energy that circled the globe literally in January of 2018. So, you know, we were kind of, you know, responding to that moment, right? To that urgency, trying to be true to that energy and using it to advance and to make some incredible advances, which we've been able to do, passing legislation, making cultural change in so many ways, putting out incredible research that actually has impacted the very issues we're talking about today. You know, we've already done through our impact lab research that has demonstrated the job creation that will happen and the economic, you know, gains that will happen from the caregiving investments, which has helped fuel, you know, this progress that we're seeing in Washington right now. And so, you know, that's the work that I'm really proud of doing. And we're also going to model a way of being self-reflective. We know we've made mistakes along the way. We want to be transparent about that and open about that and learn broadly from this broad community on how to actually do things better. And I think on that, you know, and, and you've said, I've read your statement. I've obviously been following this. When you talk about the mistakes that have been made, I think for everyone that is growing a new organization that's seeking to make change. As you said, it's only three and a half years old. There are going to be mistakes. But for you as a leader, what do you think one of the top mistakes has been? You know, I think one of the things I've learned acutely is the way in which, look, I I am somebody who has worked, you know, with powerful people for a long time. You know, I've obviously worked in the White House. I've worked, you know, for large institutions. That's why I know I can see how change has been made. But I'm learning how when you do that work, there are guardrails you're going to need to put up and probably more guardrails than I fully understood or anticipated. We clearly see how we could be used as cover. And let's be clear, what I believe happened with the Cuomo administration is we were used as cover in ways I had no understanding of until the AG's report happened. That's a problem. And we can't let that happen. Our movement cannot be used as cover for folks who are trying to actually go at survivors or others. You know, are there other ways in which we have to have guardrails around how we work with people when accusations come forward and how do we address those? We're absolutely going to do that. I want to open this up to Beyond Time's Up and the role that we all play in creating safe work environments for women. Are there specific practices that companies should be adopting to make the workplace safer? Fatima, I would love to hear from you on this. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that the last three years has taught us is that if we start with listening and being guided by survivor voices, then that is where we should begin, right? And so having places where survivors are able to actually name their experiences and feel safe doing so is really, really important. 
The other thing that many, many organizations realized three years ago when Me Too went viral, when Time's Up came on the scene, is that they probably didn't actually have the right policies in place. And so you have seen the last couple of years organizations actually working to put in place a range of policies to do the sort of cultural change training, but to also look at the systemic challenges that actually allow harassment and violence to thrive. Sometimes you might have the right policies in place, but you have the sort of systemic structures and power imbalances that leave people really vulnerable to harassment and violence. A really good example that we saw revealed when Me Too went viral was what was happening broadly in the hospitality and leisure with restaurant workers in particular, right? The system of not having one fair wage, a system of having people relying on temps made them more vulnerable to harassment from their coworkers from customers and from their bosses. And so sometimes it is about moving beyond the specific policies related to harassment and looking at what are the built-in structures that make it more likely you're gonna have the sorts of power imbalances where harassment and violence can thrive. Obviously we're all evaluating and growing our own policies to create safer environments for women. But there's been another factor that's presented itself in the past year that has had major impacts on how women show up in the workplace. And I want to move our discussion into COVID-19's impact on women and work. I first want to break down some numbers and I want to actually like really have my notes in front of me because these are stunning in their amounts and I want to make sure I get this right. Women will need more than nine straight months of job gains that's 405,000 jobs gained a month in order to make up for the 3.8 million net jobs they've lost since February, 2020. One in 10 moms with young children have quit their job with half of them saying it was because of school or daycare closures. And last year, three out of four black women said they considered leaving their jobs because of the emotional toll of racial violence and the disproportionate impact of COVID-19. We even polled you, our Skimmer community, and found out that 24% of you have started therapy since the pandemic, 17% of you have lost your jobs, 16% of you have grown your families, 70% of you thought about your mental health more frequently, and 45% of you have reconsidered their career. Why was it so easy for women's progress to be set back so far and so quickly by the pandemic? Tammy, I'd love to hear from you. Because of all the things that didn't change when some things did change, right? Like I've been telling people, I've been talking to reporters and people for months and months now, obviously, like many of us have been. And every time, like one of the first things I say to them is, these are not new problems. They are exacerbated, right? They are cranked up to 11 and beyond, but they're not new. This is not a new problem that we have, right? There were daycare deserts before COVID right? Getting daycare for a child under two in some parts of the country is not possible for almost any amount of money. Child care for the ages of two to five can be really difficult to find in a lot of places. And then when you get into school age, right, from five to 12, after school, summer school, these were all problems before COVID. Like these are all things and COVID just sort of like 
it turns out the school system closing down completely is worse. So great. Okay. We learned that not having school at all was worse than having school from like nine to two or whatever it is. But it really is just an exacerbation of an existing problem. And I have my days when I'm very disheartened and days when I'm very hopeful, right? So the disheartening days are when I think like, oh my God, I can't believe we went back 50 years in a minute and how quickly that happened and how inevitable it sort of felt when it was happening in a way that just seemed very disheartening, right? My hopeful moments are the ones where I realize like it, this has blown the cover off. Like this is finally exposed that it wasn't okay, that the system wasn't working, that the childcare system wasn't working. And we're seeing changes both on the corporate side and I think on the public policy side that lead me to have hopeful days. I go back and forth. It feels like we were all playing this very dangerous game of Jenga and like somebody moved the tile and everything crumbled. Are you surprised by how surprised so many are? around what's been exposed? I mean, yeah, I'm not though, right? So remember, I was having conversations with executives back in, you know, 2016, 17, 18, 19, where men would say to me on the regular, like, do they really want to come back to work? Are you sure? They're home with their kids. Aren't they just kind of happy there? I'm like, no, no, actually not really. And and so again, where I have hopeful moments is because I don't get that. Like it, it, there is a moment where people have gone like, oh, the idea of choice, right? Which is such a loaded word when we talk about women and the, the choices we all make. I think there is finally a recognition of how constrained Again, what is happening and what has happened has been extreme, right? Your school system closes down. That obviously is very constraining and is publicly illegible as a constraint on a family's choice in a way that I think some of the things that have been happening before were not as visible to some people. It was visible to some of us. Some of us saw it a long time ago, but it wasn't as visible to some people in power in terms of the constraint on choice. So I think that's the thing. So I wasn't surprised actually that some people were surprised by it because I was like, well, this has been going on. You just haven't seen it. You actually brought something up that I haven't actually thought about in in a while, especially going through the stats that, that Carly went through, which we live in every single day, right? We are totally focused on what can we do to help this generation of women live smarter. And right now there are a lot, a lot of things that are are needed. Is there anything in this right now that you feel hopeful about? Because Tammy, I really haven't thought about it that way. I, Jen, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. We can all sit here and, and talk about the bleakness of the situation because it certainly is, but I haven't really spent a good amount of time thinking about, is there anything hopeful that's coming out of this? This is the most hopeful moment for women, especially caregivers of generations, I have to say. Like before the pandemic, most of us were struggling quietly behind closed doors, like in a simmering crisis around managing and affording childcare, dealing with our parents aging. Maybe we had a sibling with a disability and we're trying to support them. Like it was all kind of this private simmering crisis. And we thought that if we couldn't figure it out or we couldn't afford it, it was a personal failure. It was because we were not in the right job, didn't save enough money, not ready to have a family, whatever it was, we blamed ourselves. And I think what COVID did was just like blow all of our minds (laughs) because we were like, 
we're doing everything we can and it's not enough because there's nothing in place to support us. <laughs> and I think that what we realized is that we need collective solutions. We need policies like childcare, paid family medical leave, home and community-based services, that there is a whole infrastructure to support needs that we all share, like bridges and tunnels and what everything that people call infrastructure, childcare, paid, this is all infrastructure too. But because it's women who've been shouldering these responsibilities forever, it's never been counted as infrastructure. It's never been invested in as infrastructure. Like I think Senator Casey recently said, some people need a bridge to get to work. Other people need childcare. And there's millennials are giving birth to 4 million babies per year. I mean, we clearly need some of those bridges <laughs> and we just don't, haven't had anything in place. And what we have in place is an underpaid, undervalued caregiving workforce or completely invisibilized, unsupported family caregivers and parents, moms. And that's what we can change right now. Congress right now is discussing a budget that would include massive, game-changing investments in childcare, paid leave, home care for the aging and people with disabilities, and raising wages for the mostly women and women of color who do the work that makes everything else possible in the care economy. So we are actually on the verge of a major generational shift. And that's why we need, that's why I'm so excited we're talking to the skimmers out there because we need every one of you to get engaged and get involved. This is our moment. So talking a little bit more about Congress, Fatima, you wrote an op-ed calling on senators to not leave women and people of color behind during the pandemic. Talking about this budget that's being discussed, talking about what they are doing, what do you want to see out of the government to adequately support women and people of color in order to come out of this economic crisis in a real way? Well, I join iGen with all the hope and optimism around this moment, in part because of, you know, the actions that I have been seeing this administration and Congress take. Yesterday, we were all watching with bated breath as we saw the House move forward a framework to do the sort of investment that iGen just named, both an investment in the care economy, so in childcare, in paid leave, in home care services, but also a big investment in things like ensuring that those who are most vulnerable to losing their homes will be supported and protected. We have about four and a half million women right now who might fall off a cliff at the end of the rental assistance extension. We have a major, major investment to ensure that we can raise the wages of care workers. I, I have to just double down on what was just said. The idea that our whole system before really relied on paying a majority of women of color workforce poverty wages and that that was our solution and that that was on our infrastructure, I guess, that left all of us vulnerable. It left the women who were doing those jobs more vulnerable because they had no support 
at the beginning of this crisis, but it also left every family who actually needed care vulnerable because it all fell apart. And so one of the things that I actually hope we will learn as a huge, huge lesson is how deeply connected we all are. That if we support and invest in care, that is an investment in every family, but it's also an investment in our economy. It is an investment in businesses of every size and an assurance that we will have a plan, not just for today, but for tomorrow. Tina, I want to turn to you. You spearheaded the first ever White House summit on working families during the Obama administration. How can companies ease care burdens for moms? This is something Danielle and I talk about all the time at the skim, you know, internally. And I would love to hear from you, like, what is the ideal benefits package for the new age post-COVID working mom? Of the ideal package, right? Well, let, let me say first off, you know, I join iGen and Fatima in the Optimism. You know, we were all working together on the Care Can't Wait Coalition to make, you know, what's moving through Congress happen. And what's happening at the same time is that time's up, you know, we formed a Care Economy Business Council because like what we saw when we did the White House Summit on Working Families, we saw companies starting to realize it's sort of in their best interest to look at these issues like, equal pay and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, right now they are all realizing it is in their best interests to also have a voice in and invest in caregiving, you know, to have a voice in the public policy debate so that we've got 300, over 340 companies that joined, you know, in just a couple of months to be part of this Care Economy Business Council. But to your point, to also do it themselves. You know, this is my point I always make is that a company doesn't have to wait to put paid leave in place for their workforce. So that's number one. You know, one of the clear things a company can do, and so many of them are doing it, is to have a comprehensive paid leave policy. It's not just about the birth of new children or the adoption of a child. It is also about self-care. It is also about elder care. You know, if there's an elderly parent in the home or a disabled spouse or sibling, if there is a loss in the family, so it's about bereavement leave. It is about safe days for domestic violence um, survivors who may need a day off to go to court or to change their living conditions so that they've got paid time off to do that. You know, we have companies that are part of the Care Economy Council that are also looking at the caregiving side of it too, right? What can companies do to help their employees find care? You know, whether that's investing in a child care benefit or a caregiving benefit, again, for elder care and disabled care, whether we've got companies that have actually done the work to open on-site caregiving places for their workforce or to do it collaboratively across the board in a neighborhood. You know, the other piece about the caregiving investment that I think employers are beginning to see is the underinvestment in caregiving. You know, we don't invest in it, as Ijen has pointed out with fair wages. We don't invest in it as a profession. We don't create a pathway for caregivers, right, to grow in their profession. And as a result, that's why the difficulty in finding care, which Tammy pointed out, isn't just a, a difficulty for low wage workers. Everyone up and down the wage scale has trouble finding the caregiving that they need because we haven't invested in this industry ever as a country. And this is the moment where I think everyone's eyes are opened, the private sector as well as the public sector. And we have an opportunity to grow an industry that is also predominantly black and brown women as the workers. And I hope in the future, they are the industry captains of the caregiving industry. Yeah. And I think going off of that, and, and Tammy, I'd love to hear from you on this. What can companies do to make the return to office more flexible for women? And I 
very much echo so much of what Tina said on investing for caregiving and specifically that it's caregiving that's going to hit our generation as not only our kids, but our, our parents. And that becomes even more difficult to even get your head around as, as a company, as an employer, on how do we actually support our workforce while also having real limitations, especially in a, in a COVID uh, economy where we're still kind of trying to, to see what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot. So the other thing that makes me hopeful right now, and I think we have to be very thoughtful about this, but the the number of companies that would tell me pre-COVID like, oh yeah, work from home is something that would never work for us. We can't possibly make that work, right? And now every single company we work with (laughs) is doing not only work from home, they're doing their returnship program, which is what we help them with, the returnships for women coming back to work, run those completely remotely. And was once thought of as like, there's no way that could possibly work. And it's funny what you can make work when you have no choice and you have to make it work. So I think that that I'm hopeful that we will have changed the dynamic around flexibility. And as these other systems change also, we can kind of go to an office environment that allows for flexibility without the craziness of homeschool. That would be like the dream for so many of us. But I think we do have to take care and be thoughtful about how we think about this. Fortune just had something, it was either yesterday, I'm a little behind on my broadsheets, but about, you know, what is that office environment going to look like if it is the moms who are home, right, doing work from home and doing remote work so that they can also accommodate caregiving. We've had flex policies. Many companies have had flex policies for coming on 30 years now. And then we had the mommy track, right? Where moms were the ones who took those opportunities and the dads kept kind of going up the the fast track, right? So I think we have to be thoughtful in terms of saying, okay, there's a bigger way to think about this in terms of caregiving as being something that is everyone's responsibility, right? So it doesn't just have to be a mom or a daughter or a daughter-in-law who's taking care of everybody, not to mention, right, the unpaid and underpaid piece of that, but like, it doesn't just have to be women. So our program, by the way, is open to people of any gender, right? Because if you've taken time off for caregiving, you've taken time off for caregiving. And we, when we have men in our program, I'm always like very excited. You know, we had a young man recently who had taken off to care for his mother. And I was just like, okay, this is what the new world can look like, where we can start to see both men and women taking that flexibility, whether that's taking time from their career, remote working arrangements or other kinds of things where that flexibility can work in both directions so we can create more equity in the home and in the office. That's my dream. Tammy, so many things that that you said there that I want to talk through a little bit. I think that the first thing as, as an employer, you know, I think We definitely were one of those companies, to be totally honest, that before the pandemic, we were like, you know, work from home. It's really not a thing for us. We value our our culture, meaning really in the office. And now we've been fully remote at the skim since March of 2020. And going back, we are considering a hybrid model. And a big part of that is because we want to ensure that we're not kind of training a workforce of 
women who are at all different points in their career to necessarily always think about working from home. We do think that, to your point, we're seeing men go back in person at, at much higher rates, and, and we're nervous a- about what that can mean down the road. Fatima, two years ago, only 19% of civilian workers had access to paid family leave through their employer. Can you explain the benefits of paid family leave? And I hate that I even have to ask that question, but I think it is something for everyone who is listening, who wants to go to their HR department, who wants to go to their boss and make an argument on why they need this or why they need a better policy. I think it's really important that everyone understand the benefits. You know, in the early days of the pandemic, Congress put in place what was our largest national experiment with a national paid leave program through the CARES Act, where people could take paid leave for COVID-related reasons, including school closures. And the thing that we learned is that when people have access to paid leave, they will take it for themselves, for their own serious illness. And during a pandemic, all of a sudden people understood with real clarity how important it is for people to be able to take that leave, but also to care for the people in their lives, for their loved ones, for a newborn, for a a recently adopted child, for family who, and people like family who have long-term care needs. Paid leave is not just a nice to have thing. I think what we have learned is that it is a critical part of the care infrastructure that we need. And what has happened, unfortunately, when we have had systems that have left it to sort of a hodgepodge where, you know, if you happen to get the right company and the right job and you get paid leave, even those companies haven't always equitably provided it, right? So that you might have paid leave for workers in professional settings, but workers who work on contract or workers who are hourly workers were less likely to have it. So what we know is we need a system. It can't be about lucking into the right boss or not. It is a standard that will ensure that we are healthier, that our families are more intact, and that our workplaces actually have the ability to be secure and to plan for the future. So we've tested it, it's possible, and we're able, we're on the cusp of actually doing this in the plan that Congress is considering now, which I have to say, I don't know that I would have believed two years ago when those stats first came out, that Congress would be taking this really bold step and all of us should be focused on making sure they get it over the finish line. I want to talk specifically about the fact that women of color take on more care responsibilities than any other group. Latina moms are 1.6 times more likely than white moms to be responsible for all the childcare and housework, and black moms are twice as likely to take on those responsibilities. Couple that with a critical shortage of care workers, and we have a huge issue on our hands. So, Ijen, this question's for you. What what is the government currently doing to address the needs of working women of color when it comes to care responsibilities, and what are they not doing enough of? Well, what's really profound about this question is that there's a really long history of the government explicitly excluding care workers who are women of color from basic rights and protections and 
And it's not an act, it's kind of fed a culture where we treat care work as less than real work, right? We still refer to care workers sometimes as the help, right? As opposed to the professionals, the millions of full-time professionals who do this work uh, as a living, as a career, and are incredibly dedicated to doing it. And it is a workforce that's mostly women of color. And always this work as a profession has been associated with women of color. Some of our first domestic workers and home care workers were actually enslaved African women. And that association throughout time has allowed for an exclusion to be embedded in our laws. When our labor laws were put into place, it explicitly excluded domestic workers from equal rights and protections. So what we're doing right now, what we've been doing for the last few decades has been trying to address those exclusions and get care workers included in basic rights that most of us take for granted when we go to work every day, rights that have been in place since the 1930s. Now what we're doing is actually totally different. It's a transformation. It's a great leap into the future where we're actually trying to say, you know what, these jobs should be good jobs for the 21st century that you can support your family on and sustain in and one generation can do better than the next. And they should be treated as professionals with dignity and respect. And all of the families and the entire economy, which relies on the work of this workforce, will actually be strengthened by that in that process. And disproportionately women of color who are also disproportionately holding, as you named, caregiving responsibilities for their own families. So it's this kind of like amazing, instead of a trickle down, like a ripple up effect when you invest in care workers who are mostly women of color, it does really support everyone and disproportionately women of color too, to actually participate in this economy, to succeed, to excel, to prosper. That's what we have the opportunity to do now with this budget proposal that Fatima talked about. And I know we're harping on this right now, but it is this really big moment where all of these issues are literally on the table. We're used to policymaking where it's like, for these 10 years, you can talk about this aspect of childcare. <laughs> and, and that's all you can do. And you have to wait your turn before you can talk about paid leave. Right now, we're talking about the whole thing. We're talking about everything we need to take care of the people that we love while we're working. And so it's a real game changer and it's all in there right now in the budget proposal. One of the many challenges that, that all women face who take time off or break for caregiving is how to then go back into the workforce if they choose to. Tammy, your organization specifically helps women restart their careers after taking a break for caregiving. And I'm really curious, I think one is what is the best path forward to secure a job if she has significant gaps on her resume? And then in addition to that, for all women, what is the best way to start networking during a pandemic? <laughs> So the thing I've been talking about a lot uh, is I would love for us to move to a place where women feel they have permission to make their career a priority. And it sounds funny to say that here we are in 2021, but it doesn't happen. And there's actually a book out about how different sex couples deal with unemployment when it's a man versus a woman and specifically like a mother versus a father. 
And when men are out of work, right, there's like the decks get cleared, right? Like we got to make sure that he has all the time and space and mental energy to find work. Whereas when it's a mother who is out of work, it's a very different set of, right? She's still responsible for domestic childcare, all those kinds of things. So I want first and foremost for women coming out of this pandemic and having had had to make these choices, which again, I'm putting in scare quotes because they were not choices in any real sense of that word, but who are coming back into the workforce to first and foremost, to give themselves the permission they need to make it a priority, right? Kids can make their own lunches, you know, dad can make dinner a couple nights a week. Like this can be a priority. You have been out of the workforce. You can come first now and you can take the time that you need to do that and to make that space. And and the reason I start with that is because that's part of the networking answer is like having time for it. The great thing I think right now is there's more opportunity. I've met with people I never, ever, ever would have gotten to meet with in the old world where I wouldn't have been able to fly here, there or everywhere, or, you know, our schedules wouldn't have aligned because the idea of doing a Zoom call now is so much more accessible, I think, than it was before. So I think actually we're in a really good time for networking and a good time for people to be reaching out, but it's about having a mindset that says my career is also an important thing alongside the care of my family and the things I need to do. Like that's something that I can prioritize and make space for. And then starting to reach out to people and do that is, is the thing that, you know, that then just kind of can happen. Thank you all for a great conversation. We're going to move now to some questions we got from our audience and we got a lot. Unfortunately, we don't have time for all of them, but you guys asked some great ones. So Carly, you have one we're going to start with. Okay. Are you guys ready? I have recently, this is not me. This is a question. (laughs) I have recently quit my job. When I look around, I see that many other women have done the same or are shuffling in some significant manner in their lives following the pandemic. Can you share a fork in the road moment you have had in your career or life? And what did that experience teach you? Tina, I would love to hear from you on this. You know, probably I, I will say, you know, I, I got divorced, you know, and became, I was a lawyer and a young, you know, young lawyer and got divorced shortly after my son was born, my first child. And that was a bit of a fork. You're becoming a new mom, figuring out a career that I was committed to, figuring out this life as a single parent for really an infant. And those are those moments, right? When you are asking a lot of questions about yourself and your child, this, this new responsibility you had, it was all very new to me at the time and what to do about this. And I was a very young lawyer, so I was not an established lawyer. And so what to do and the conflicting things of becoming the breadwinner for this new family of mine, as well as caring for him, as well as doing, you know, my own ambitions playing into this as well. And that was the fork. Now, one of the things I realized was, and I had the good fortune to have paid family leave at the time, even 30 years ago, taught me that I was a terrible stay-at-home person. (laughs) So so there there, there are lots of things that could come out of having paid family leave. And one of them is also to recognize some of your own limitations. So that sort of answered the first question was that figuring out that, and then I had to figure out childcare. And I was got very fortunate to find, you know, someone who could come into my home to do that. And I had the means to do it, which has always propelled me on these issues of caregiving that it was hard for me. And I was a lawyer with means. And I always think about how does a woman on minimum wage who's confronting what I confronted navigate that fork in the road moment? Because look, I got through it. My kids got through it. They're adults now where we have there are wonderful people and a great relationships. I will say that to the young parents out there, that if you're a working mom, 
they get through it and kids are resilient and you can have that relationship. But I'm really so committed on these issues of caregiving because I had it lucky and it was just lucky that I was in a profession that gave me the means. But so many millions of women do not have that. And I feel a real obligation to make this better for them. Our last question for today, what is the most important action someone can take today to make an impact for the next generation of women in the workplace, whomever wants to take it? Well, I have to say that people need to focus on this budget. We've been talking about it. And if you have never been the type of person to call your member of Congress, to call the House of Representatives, to call your senator, now's the time to do it. They need to hear from people that you care about things like childcare and paid leave, that you care about them for yourselves and for others, and that you are counting on them to Fatima, act. Fatima, if somebody's listening and hasn't ever made that call, literally tell me what you say. Somebody answers the phone. This is so-and-so's office. This what is do you what say? you should do. You call up and you say, hi, my name is Fatima. I live in your district. And what I want you to focus on the vote I need you to take is in support of child care and paid leave and home care services. I need you to make that investment. You cannot give up. It matters to me. That is enough. That is enough for them to write that down. And that is enough for that member of Congress to understand that it matters to the people they represent. It doesn't matter what party you're in. It doesn't matter if you think that you have a member of Congress who usually does the right thing, or if you think you have a member of Congress who never listens to you, make the call. And I'll just add in the National Women's Law Center, the National Domestic Workers Alliance, Care Can't Wait, just just Google the Care Can't Wait Coalition, and you can get connected to organizations that will give you the patch through. You don't even have to look up the phone number. You can type in where you live. You'll get the information in the patch through right through to your member. And absolutely, it does not matter where you live. Everyone in Congress needs to hear from everyone in their districts, red or blue, on this issue in the coming weeks. And this is like right now. This is from now until like November when the votes get taken. This is the critical moment. We're in it right now. That is a a great place to end with that call to action for today. Thank you, everyone, for spending your time with the skim. A special thank you to Fatima, Tina, Tammy, and iGen for putting into context not only what's affecting working women, but also letting us know the actions we can take in our lives to affect change. This is just the start of a conversation women are having about navigating work and life as we deal with the Delta wave of the pandemic. Thank you again for joining everyone, and we hope to see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less.